Welcome back to the Progress City Radio Hour and part two of our Progress City Town Hall interview with former Imagineer and creative talent in his own right, Mr. Eddie Sato. Uh, with me as always, Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing excellent. I really enjoyed part one of this. Eddie is a very interesting guy, so I'm excited for part two. Absolutely. So let's get right into it we're gonna cover some more ground with eddie hear what he has to say and maybe look at some of uh, the issues facing our industry today and some viewer questions too so let's see what he has to say mr eddie sada i would imagine working at disney during the so-called disney decade was in a lot of ways the best of times and worst of times you know, it seemed like the sky was the limit ideal wise, but maybe a lot of things weren't, didn't wind up getting built. So you, there's kind of a mix there. Yeah, there was. I mean, it feel like, I felt like after Disneyland Paris, unfortunately, it was like coming back from a war that nobody believed in and you kind of come home and, you know, while you were there, I still have the congratulations, Michael, you know, I have all the, the, the hoopla of opening it and you come back to it, not performing as they wanted it to perform or they expected it to perform or empty mm -hmm. hotel rooms, you know, and I would look at the guest numbers and the guest satisfaction numbers were very, very high. I mean, incredibly high. Even if you compare the attendance first year of Walt Disney world's magic kingdom to Disneyland Paris, it was, I believe better than the magic kingdom of Walt Disney world. Remember, there's only one park at that time. So sure. you, have, you want to be apples to apples. Um, but at the same time, they were gun shy. Frank Wells passing away, Michael Eisner losing his, his ying and his yang or his partner. These things were big blows at the management level. And uh, yeah, there was even Frank was still alive when Disneyland Paris, you know, when, when, when he had to kind of look at how refinancing and fixing it. They didn't have that same gung-ho attitude and livid imagineering like they used to. So I felt the pendulum. We all did. I know Tony did. It was a big blow to him because, you know, Michael was kind of his partner in like, what's next, Tony? What are we doing next? And uh, things kind of screeched to a halt there for a while. Sure. They sure did. Well, you know, this gives me a chance to ask about the probably the biggest player in Disney at this time and for a long time, which is Michael Eisner. And so is someone, you know, you... Uh, you know and have had interactions with uh, for decades now. So I just wondered if you could tell us a little about a little about Michael and uh, what he's like to work with. Well, I I was very fortunate. I came to the company in 1986. He and Jeffrey and Frank had just got there. So there was about a year of them revving the engines. And Disneyland Paris was the number one project on their on their docket. So they were involved. You know, and and you think of CEOs. CEOs are not always involved in lots of creative decisions, but Michael saw him as not the creator. He didn't have to put his fingerprints all over every single thing, um, but he did have a creative instinct. And Michael Eisner is a very well-read and well-educated man, much more than most Hollywood executives. Mm. You know, he, he knows what he's doing. He reads scripts. He makes notes. He really can get into the depth of not just a, a typical film, but understanding why something doesn't work or, or looking at it uh, in a very critical, with a critical eye at a, at a 50,000 foot level and giving us notes. So 
He was also a fan of Imagineering. He loved Imagineering. And then he brings in Frank Wells. And remember, a lot of the mark of a great executive is who they attract. And bringing in Frank Wells and having Frank Wells there and him being able to work with Frank, Frank was a buccaneer of a businessman. He, yes, he was doing the business, but he never wanted Michael's limelight. He left that to Michael. Michael was the creative force. And really, they, they formed a beautiful, beautiful team, and they worked so well together. And the one person that could tell Michael his idea was not a great idea was Frank Wells. Mm. Michael mm. go, Frank, let's do this, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then Frank would say, well, Michael, no. I hate that. I hate that. And then friend Michael would go, you don't understand, blah, blah. They would argue, openly argue about these things. Yeah. And, you know, they were free enough and so confident in what they were doing to do it with us there. They really made us feel partners. You could be in a restaurant. Remember, I was, you know, I wasn't the senior guy at the time. I was like a vice president level new guy, right? If you're in a restaurant, Michael would walk over. If he saw you in a Hollywood restaurant, he'd walk over to say hello to you. Hmm. Michael Eisner really was uh, a people person and wonderful with talent. So, uh, but his creative instincts, I think, is really what, what drove him to do these things. And one of his great quotes was, uh, I believe on Animal Kingdom, they kind of gave him this business result that sort of said, well, you know, you could do it or not do it. And Michael Eisner's response, I was not in the meeting, but I heard this was, we can't afford not to do it. Hmm. See, that's the kind of mind you needed is someone said, well, you know, we are Disney. We can't afford not to do this. We need to be innovating in this way. Was every idea had a great idea? Well, no one's ideas are 100% great. But Michael, I feel uh, more than anyone, really made Imagineering feel like they were really uh, a part of the studio process and the creative process. And so, uh, I, I don't know, I really respected him. I think he was severely wounded. It was never the same um, and never had that the same confidence uh, once he had to think of it from the shareholders, strictly the shareholders' point of view. I think he was always in the court. He would say to us, he goes, well, look, I'm willing to go on a limb. I'm willing to take big risks, but it can't not possibly make its money back. <laughs> I have right. a fiduciary duty here. It, if, it, if, it, if it can somehow do it, he goes, and thank goodness Lion King can cover a multitude of sins. When we have big hits, they're blockbusters and they cover all those misses. But um, I'm willing to take some big bets all over the table here, but we can't do them all. Right. Go with me on this. But he was the man who, thank you, and I, I would, wouldn't have got to do ABC Times Square Studio without Michael going, well, we're just going to give this to Eddie. Yeah. He's going to do this, you know. And so he believed in the concept studio, and uh, he's a wonderful guy. So, you know, that's that's how I felt about him. And uh, I really respect him as both a, an executive and a creative leader. But I think Bob Iger, in his time, too, is the perfect guy when that pendulum swings another time. You know, no pitcher can pitch 40 innings in a row. You pitch yeah. your nine, you get tired, you've given it your best, and you bring in a reliever or a different pitcher to pitch to a different batter. And the batters had changed at Disney. The world had changed at Disney. And Bob Iger was the perfect guy to come in at that moment. And look what he's been able to do. He never pretended to be the creative executive, He, but he attracted and acquired the creativity the company wanted at the time. Right, absolutely. Needed at the time. Uh, look at look, look at John Lasseter. Look how he developed John Lasseter. So, 
um, there were, were good things in it every time. People ask me about Disney and go, well, Eddie, what about the company today? And this, I'm like, well, I can tell you about the pendulum when I was being, you know, ducking my head so it wouldn't hit me, mm. you know. Um, I know about that, but uh, I, I like to have confidence as a shareholder and in the people running it, you know, when they're running it. Right. Well, and it's, you know, you, it really was swinging when you were there, that pendulum. And you, you know, you think of 1994 as being such a turning point when, you know, Eisner, I mean, lost Frank Wells. He had his heart attack. There was the management shuffle. There was Disney's America. It's like everything hit all at once. It was like a tidal wave of, you know, one blow after another. And you can really see why it would make somebody gun shy. And, you know, dealing with Michael Ovitz and all of that, it was really just a, a composite of things. Yeah. And Michael Ovitz was never really absorbed or accepted into the com. I'm sure there's books about all this stuff, but you know, Michael Ovitz, um, he came over to Imagineering, but his style was very, very different. He was very much the agent. And I think Michael very early on, very early on could see that that chemistry wasn't going to click, but it's funny. No one seems to remember this. When Michael Eisner was getting Michael Ovitz, Everyone in Hollywood said it was the coup of the century oh, and yeah. he was the smartest guy on the planet Earth and no one disagreed with that decision. Totally. Okay? Then once things you know, once things began to go south a little bit or things weren't meshing as they expected, then everyone becomes the uh, armchair quarterback and says, "Well, what a bad decision and he shouldn't have done this." But believe you me, at the time that that was happening, no one could believe, oh, wow, how could he land Michael Ovitz? This is a match made in heaven, you know? Yeah, you're so right. A Midas that is absolutely touch. true. Yeah. Well, I mentioned, you know, you were really into, in this period, incorporating interactivity and technology into the park experience long before, you know, the modern day trend of that happening. You were really ahead of things. Of the things you can talk about, what's the most out there thing you pitched in this time? Well, there were a lot of out there things. I mean, I did pitch this one thing called the Lights of Winter. And I had seen this product called the Hoberman Sphere. And if you Google that, it's a toy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> By the way, some toys need to stay in the toy store. You can't just put anything on a photocopier and make it an attraction. But <laughs> there was this little sphere, and you'll see it in every science museum. It looks like a little ball. When you pull on it, it expands. It's like a sure. series of little presses. Well, I thought, man. If only you could expand this thing 80 feet tall. I mean, as big as, you know, as big as a Disneyland castle, you could make this thing big. What if you could do that? And I, and I investigated the inventor who'd already gone down this course doing um, shade structures, putting canvas on these trusses and having it like living trusses and they looked alive. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, if we could have this sphere small in the hub, of Tokyo Disneyland, and then music begins to play, and we embed the thing in strobe lights, and it gets bigger and bigger and larger and larger, and then you can see through it, and there's fog and smoke and music, and we can project with it and do all this stuff. This would be, it could take the place of putting all those erectors set down Main Street, or it would take the place of <laughs> a lot of things that I thought were, and a lot of in Japan, by the way, they'd already done other attractions had done these winter lights kind of things. And that's all Oriental and Company wanted 
was low scale lights in the hub. And I probably should have just listened to them and given them a gorgeous <laughs> version of that and walked away. But unfortunately, it's kind of like every prisoner, you know, if you leave the key too close to the cell, they're going to spend all night trying to get that key. Right. So I, I, I wanted to escape so bad and I'm just driven to do new things. So I, I thought, well, let's do the thing. And I pretty much tried to ram it down their throat, you know. And they didn't want it. I mean, they they liked it, but and I, and I don't even feel bad talking about it because I think there was probably months of cranes just trying to get this thing into the park prior to this during the you know summer season, you know. And of course, the whole park's on a landfill, so this ball would have probably just you know punched a hole through the hub and kept sinking all the way down <laughs> to the core of the earth or something. I don't know, but that was probably the most outlandish thing. But we had the most beautiful videos and Hoberman worked with us this guy was a genius and he engineered it and i mean just in a preliminary way we didn't go yeah. that far but it was a gorgeous presentation i mean if they if somebody ever did do that it could be pretty cool at least i think it would be pretty cool it's but a cool uh, idea yeah. at least it would save save that but uh that that was one of the ones that just kind of went down in in flames in in, in kind of in kind of in a flaming ball of winter <laughs> you know well, sometimes those are the most fun ones, uh, the ones that go down in flames. But, so I, I would say that was fairly, fairly outrageous. I mean, I was always searching patents and looking for things that were in other technologies, uh, audio technologies, trying to uh, do a theater of the future. I still do this today. I'm always looking to apply technologies from one world to another, take experiential sensory uh, experiences and um, look at interfaces, human interfaces to put audio inside your mind or put sound. And um, I, I'm always looking to, even today, very much so, I'm working on a project now, even today, that involves neuroscience. So um, uh -huh. yeah, no, we're going to right now, a neuroscience project. So uh, I feel like imagination doesn't have any boundaries. You know, we should always keep looking for, it, it, there was a day when a movie theater where people are all going to sit with sticky floors and popcorn in the dark and look <laughs> at this wall with a light projected on it was like an outlandish idea. Right. You mean I'm going to be in the dark between two perfect strangers for three hours? Yes. And you will consent to do it. <laughs> and you'll pay to do it. And you'll pay to do it. And you'll even go back again, you know, and you'll, there'll be a little poster that'll reassure you it'll be okay if you go inside you know <laughs> so i'm thinking there's always that next thing you know absolutely yeah well you know you uh from a very early age you wanted to be an imagineer i know a little bit what that's like so i can only imagine how hard it was to leave imagineering which begs the question and this is something you've touched a little on uh, why does someone leave imagineering well People usually leave companies for two reasons. One, because of the work or because of the people they work for. It's either you leave the management or the product, or you're mm. like, you know, what the job is. And I had a little bit of a little bit of both, but primarily, you know, as an artist or designer, you know, my thirst has always been what's next. And I want to create, I want to do that next thing. So when I told you about the free-ranging ride system, you know, no one got it. Nobody wanted to even. You, know, I, you have to have funding for this concept studio. I could almost see the funding of the studio being cut in half or something. Things were very, very austere. 
I mean, the pendulum kind of looked like a like a knife or an axe, you know. Yeah. You know, it's the like and the pendulum. I was in the wrong funhouse, you know. So I'm like going, oh, this doesn't look look too good here. So I could see that. I could see that this austerity was affecting the creative process. So to me, that was like you know one one big piece of it. So so that that was a part of it. But the other one is this desire to always learn new things and create and and. Uh, I had begun writing television shows and creating TV shows and selling them. I had a lot of other little things that, apart from my Imagineering contract that it looked like I could do. Um, I was getting some moderate success in that, getting, you know, being forced into the Writers Guild to do a television series, getting my mm. series optioned at ABC. So I, I had some ideas that were beginning to get traction. But of course, the TV business is very volatile. I mean, the minute yeah. the executive that said yes gets fired 10 minutes from saying yes, they throw <laughs> your stuff away and start over. I mean, TV is very risky. But but anyway, I had a lot of shiny nickels floating around out there. And at the time, I was a senior vice president. So I had tremendous benefits and every reason. And even another Imagineer goes, look, you know, why would you go? You could do this forever. You could just sit here. We're like medical specialists. We do this specialized thing. We could just keep doing that. And I go, well, I don't right. want to be keep, I don't want to keep doing anything. I want to move forward. I want to, you know, I want to do new, new things all the time. I just don't feel that appetite. I tried to stay on as working on uh, kind of as the chief creative officer of Disney's online world, but that was mm. in too much of its early stages to even entertain experimentation. They were doing flash games, you know? Yeah. You know, Bejeweled was an exciting idea back then. So it was kind of <laughs> like, okay, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't see that happening. So I had some people from the internet came and said, Eddie, how, how about chief creative officer at sort of like a, a brand new internet startup where you can be like a television executive, but creating online programming and learning how to produce and direct episodic online content at really good budgets. And I thought, you know what, that in the future, how many customers are there for rides, Universal and Disney, especially at the scale that my reputation's taken me to, which is super expensive, you know? Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, it's hard to go backwards. So I thought, well, okay. And my wife is gonna have twins. Oh boy, great, love that. How do you, how do you now extend your career for another 20 years, you know? Well, it's learning new tricks. This dog needs to not rely on his past, but go out and learn new tricks, design restaurants, design shopping centers, create internet content. I need to reimagine myself because there's no there's no Frank Lloyd Wright of the architecture of this new thing called the internet yet. I need to learn how to tell stories that people touch with their finger and click on. That's what I need to understand. This world of content, how many more rides are they going to build? They're not building them right now. These are, I'm just giving you my, my mental conversations. Sure. So yeah. I opted, I opted to take that risk and risks, they have rewards. I've learned a lot um, and done a lot. I've done a tremendous amount of things since I've, I've left and I'm actually prouder of some of that work than, than even some of the Disney work. So I feel like it was a good experience, but it has risk. It has ups and downs. It's a roller coaster, you know? Well, so you leave Disney, and I, I just love to hear a little perspective about you know how you find the balance between the lure of Imagineering versus charting your own path, and how 
you know, finding that through the years has been rewarding for you. I feel like so many people have been so fantastic to me. You know, I think if you help others, they help you. I think if you're open and you just have an open and open, like this guy, I'll try anything, you know, look on your face and you work hard, then others will want to see you succeed. They're going to want to see that idea get built. And, you know, it takes a team. So it's not always my idea either. It's many ideas. It's it's ideas that evolve and change. It's, you know, it's clay. And so to me, I'm all, and when I wrote my resignation, I said, I will always be an Imagineer. Mm-hmm. Hey, Disney does not own the the ethic of being an Imagineer. An Imagineer takes things that look impossible and says, you know, I think we can do that. And the reason it hasn't been done yet is the right people haven't been put around the right table to make it happen. So with this COVID thing, and I won't get into that yet, but with, I feel like we want to aim higher. Let's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give into normalizing masks in theme parks forever. Fine. You can have a mask today, but I look forward to the day when there's no mask. Cause it's not just because of a vaccine. It's creating a future proof world where people are going to be able to walk in and feel like they're at the cleanest and the safest place on earth where people mm-hmm. look at other people and are not wary of them. That doesn't help human culture where you go, you know what? I'm, I'm willing to look at that stranger and say, wasn't that cool? That's the coolest firework I've ever seen in my life. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And where people can share things. That's what you have to have sure. is this shared experience. So, as an Imagineer, I just point that process and attitude toward anything in my path, whether it's mm-hmm. you know faith or whether it's a problem or whether it's a relationship or, or anything like that. You know, you'd say, well, wait a minute, why can't several of us? Why is this impossible now? It's because nobody said we're we're going to treat it as a hurdle instead of an obstacle that's just going to sit there, you know? Right, right. Why does it have to be that way? I mean, the old story of an Imagineer was, you know, how many Imagineers does it take to change a light bulb? Does it have to be a light bulb? That's what the Imagineer (laughs) supposedly says. Well, right. So people go, well, you know, um, how many Imagineers does it take to do a COVID-compliant ride? And I says, well, I don't know, but why does it have to be a COVID compliant ride? Why don't we solve the COVID and create a screening process where people come in and they're, they're, they don't have a disease like they do at the airport where you're not a terrorist. They didn't go, how do we make a bomb proof? You know, they don't make planes that are bomb proof where the bomb goes off in the plane, right? Oh, right. look, it doesn't right. crash. Right. Right. No, you don't, you don't build partitions, bomb proof partitions inside the airplane. You solve it you know, at the, uh, at the beginning, somebody asked me about that once. I said, well, you know, you don't make a bigger ashtray for a chain smoker. You ask them why they smoke. You get inside the problem and you make them a happy person. And maybe they don't want to smoke anymore. You figure out why they're smoking in the first place. They're troubled about something. If you can make them happy, they'll forget about that or they'll conquer it or have the will to make that change. So, uh, to me, Imagineering is, is I don't want to say it's a way of life, but it's kind of a way you approach things and you look at others. You don't look at yourself as the as the way to solve a problem. You look at a team and you say, well, how do I get the best minds around this? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I get the best talent around this? And you think of the biggest problems that people have solved. Isn't it true? It's about doing that. I mean, people want to believe that Elon Musk 
or Steve Jobs or any of these guys are the end all. Well, they're not. They're pitchmen. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and people either follow them and say, you know what? I believe in that dream. I get up because I want to put someone on the moon or I, uh, or I want to see an electric car or whatever it is, you know, or I want to see like my, my favorite thing about Disney was just sitting on a bench and watching other people use the thing our group worked on and say, well, does sure. that, is that what I thought it was going to be? Or, Ooh, Nobody listens to that upstairs window thing, but boy, do they sure like touching that little apple and watching it go off or, or whatever it is that, that they see, right. you know, because we're not, we, we can't know it all, you know? Well, you touched on something that's just essential as the collaboration and the team aspect. And you've worked with so many remarkable people in your career. I was wondering if you had a few that stood out to you for their you know, influence or goodness to you or. Well, I mean, I've already mentioned many of those who gave saw, you know, an uneducated person that had talent. And I and I, I think it is important to mention talent because sometimes technique does not invent an attraction or or sometimes. But talent, you know, having a certain amount of talent, but talent can also be undeveloped. It could be rough, um, or or also perseverance or endurance. Those are also talents. People that can endure to do that, and then uh, so I, I do thank people like Tony or uh, Gary Goddard or just people along the way. Rick Campbell posthumously or different ones. I thank my parents. You know, I asked my dad once. I said, you know, Dad, you know how how do you make your decisions in life? And he goes, Well, you know, uh, my best decisions were made for me. I go, you mean mom made all the decisions? He goes, no, mom didn't make all the decisions. I'm telling you that I lost my job at one time or life happens to you. You know, and I, I tend to think I, a good friend of mine, a very good friend is, is a legendary surfer. And you talk about the perfect wave. Well, you don't make those waves. The waves come and like in a surf contest and, and you do the best with the waves you're given. And you have endurance or you have patience and all those qualities, you know, it's like that, I think. And so when I think of different individuals, Herb Ryman was an influence on me. Um, then there's people that that uh, I just enjoyed that I don't think got enough credit, like Ed Johnson I worked with, who was a tremendous friend. But every time I was doubting doing it right, he came from the old school of Imagineering or WED, you know, and he worked in the model shop. And he's like, Ed, Eddie. He's the other Ed, he calls himself. He says, look, that's janky. They're not doing it right. Do it right. Hold out for, don't settle, do it right. And so there were times I wanted to settle and people told me not to, or just different ones that were really wonderful. Herb Ryman, of course, was a, was a, a great influence on me as a, a person that said, you need to research and travel. You know, those things were, were, were positive. Gary Goddard, in the sense, his sense of entertainment or theater, not discounting it, not being all about the design, always focusing on that. So, so many, even uh, John Hench. Um, but then there's talents that were always there to do great things. Chris Runko, I think, is one of the great Imagineers. You, you, you would know him from Typhoon Lagoon, but the people that really carry the water in a lot of these attractions that were there, that were very positive influences. Uh, just different ones that that I look at. I guess the funny thing is everybody has good qualities and 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 qualities that are not as good. So I always look sure. for the the good 
in any other person I work with and say, how can I copy that aspect of it? Because none of us are 100% strong. I hope I have a couple of right, good qualities right. that people want to emulate. And hopefully they don't emulate my bad qualities or my weaknesses, I should say. They're not bad qualities, they're just weaknesses people have, you know. Right. Well, I, I'm curious, you know, you've, you have all kinds of range of projects that you work on. And some have got to be, you know, super exciting. Some maybe not that exciting. I mean, how do you find an appeal in the projects you take on, uh, in all the variants that they may be, you know, what, what, what motivates you? Hard fun. Alan Kay made up that Alan Kay is like one of the fathers of the personal computer from Xerox park. I think he actually named it personal computer. Mm. <laughs> I think he's one of the inventors, if not the inventor of the mouse. I mean, all these things that happened in Xerox park back even before Steve jobs, you know, and he called it hard fun. It's kind of like people that are attracted to math. And I guess I'm attracted to difficult challenges. I don't like design competitions because I feel like they're really not fair. They're very subjective, committee oriented. I don't even enter design competitions, things like that. But I do like getting hired to solve for people or other you know, clients and things like this. And so the harder the fun, the more drawn I am to it. And so I also just love, you know, the opportunities to design beautiful things, things that, you know, so we've, I've been very fortunate. Our, our company's got to work with Ferrari or Aston Martin or Embraer aircraft and just to kind of create beautiful things. I guess if I was born many, many years ago, I'd be the I'd want to be the guy that was the clockmaker in the village that doesn't isn't materialistic in the way I want an Aston Martin, but I'd sure like to work on one or design the showroom like we do. We're doing I work with them, you know, to do things like that that are really cool and really beautiful and 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 get to do things. I like to watch others enjoy them. So I I, I guess I like being the guy to make things for others or or design things that people enjoy. Um that's exciting to me. And I like all fields, you know, I'm, I'm producing a record right now. I have no business doing that, <laughs> but oh. I want to do it. I just want to do what I haven't done. And I feel like I, I could add something as long as I could add something to it from another experience or bring something to it. Um, I feel like every job gets me the next job too. It's right, like, right. had I not done this one project, I wouldn't have ended up doing an, an airplane project. Or if I hadn't done one automotive job, it wouldn't have got me the other automotive job or, or what, what have you. So literally, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the journey is the destination, you know, that's the sure. Well, at some point I'm going to have to hear more about this record you're producing, but, uh, clearly you've done all kinds of different projects. Uh, do you have a project that if you could get it off the ground, do you know, like a dream project, something in mind that you would like to do that you haven't done yet? Well, I'm kind of working on it now. So I'm hoping it happens. Um, okay. And cross uh, fingers for that. well, I'm working with Virgin yeah. Galactic. That's all I have to say. So they, if I had to pick the Disney of aerospace, that would be it. And of course they just brought in my good friend, Joe Rohde, to be a part of that project or just the whole endeavor. I'll just say an endeavor. So that's exciting. Um, I would say the, the other kind of thing, frankly, is if somehow 
this COVID screening, which is a civilization level technology that can scan you, not just for COVID-19, but with a breathalyzer, tell you if you had any other variant or other virus, kind of disease, kind of virus, not disease, virus, do you have any idea the effect on the world that that would have and just identifying to screen people coming in out of countries or screen people going to events and doing things that would help the medical science? So my part of that would be making it fun, making it seamless, making it invisible as part of an experience, right. not a, a process where somebody goes, hey, you know, I just won the World Series. I'm going to swab my nose and go to Disney World, you know? <laughs> no, I, I, I think that that's just offensive. How do you do it in a way where no one even knows that it's happening to you? So the technology is there. It's not to the finish line yet, but it's it's very, very close. It's laboratory close, but it has to work on average people in the field reliably. There's, It's the difference between Bob Gurr and a bobsled and a finished Matterhorn. I mean, you know, yeah, there's proof of concept, but there's, there's a road there. And being an Imagineer, I know guest safety is beyond, you know, number one. So... Anyway, that to me, that's a that's that kind of a dream project to see something that has, you know, kind of a uh, an impact that would help people get back to work and and do things. But right. uh, but I don't know. Air aerospace is exciting. Um, automobiles. I've always wanted to do a car, but you know these things are highly regulated and they take years. But but working on something like that would be. And even if it's to be Ed Big Daddy Roth of my own generation, who sure. was a car customizing pioneer, mm -hmm. um, I've always wanted to do custom vehicles like the Eddie Sato version of an autonomous car, you know, and not have it look like everybody else's autonomous car. It would have to be something that makes makes a difference and be is fun, you know. Yeah. Well, as a car guy, you've certainly gotten to do some fun some fun stuff with these really really nice brands you know there's there that has to have been exciting well i do want to finish finish the sky yacht one project or the sky ranch project and those are award-winning designs that are out there that have yet to be built in a particular aircraft so i'd love to interpret a classic yacht or classic uh, luxury design into some interesting form like that you know, we did a, a custom Rolls Royce to complement it, just to show the potential of what could happen. Found vendors to build it and everything. So, but I would love to do some kind of a really interesting, you know, uh, Sato edition custom, custom car. That would be. I could see it. Not, it's not to be famous or anything like that. I, I just want to do it to see it get made. I mean, it's, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's why you light yeah. fireworks. You just want to watch them blow up. <laughs> to see what happens. <laughs> you know? Right. You know, you just kind of go, can I light that firework, please, please? I just want to light it. I want to watch it blow up and do things. Plus, you end up meeting the smartest people. In every one of these businesses, you go in to meet like the greatest engineers, the smartest people. And mm -hmm. that's another addiction of mine is just meeting really interesting actors, uh, meeting you know, uh, interesting directors, interesting production designers. I learn from all those people. I take a little, a little piece of that. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, you know, you mentioned you mentioned this record that you're working on, and I think you've mentioned that online. Is there a, a, anything you'd like to tease to get people revved up for this? Well, I would like to tease one little thing, one minor thing. Is this? Uh, you know, I always thought that the the Space Mountain music as much as Dick Dale worked on it, he had a very, he just played some licks. 
and Aaron Richard did a great job of producing it and so forth. But I've always wanted that chainsaw guitar that when you saw Dick play live, went right through your gut because he used aircraft cables for his guitar strings. Well, the only <laughs> other guitarist I know that did that was Laramie Dean, who traveled with Dale, toured with Dale and headlined with Dale, who's literally today's preeminent guitar king of surf. This guy plays fantastic. And so um, we made friends and I said, you know, I want to redo Carnival of the Animals, public domain song. Take that song. What would you do with it? What if we could get, you know, what if we can get Marky Ramon to play the drums? What if we could get a dream team of surf punk into a room and I'll do the voice. We have ignition and, but ignite escape from Space Mountain. Make this the surf punk limited edition vinyl romp version of that track and just do it as a tribute, kind of a fan song. And I mean, I'm, I'm not taking any Disney soundtrack things out of it. I'm just making our own version called Escape from Space Mountain or Surf Mountain or something, but we're building it and we're doing it. And we've already recorded most of it and we're polishing it and just taking our time and having fun. But um, everything we couldn't do in the ride, and frankly, maybe we'll do a, a cut down edit that's just long enough for you to play it on your on your headphones. Right, there. right. But how fun would that be? You know. But I just, I just wanted to do it. I don't, you know. And 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 Laramie just said, "Oh man, I would just love to do that. Let me let me learn how to to do that." But I've got a few licks that have not been in the ride. Let me. I'm gonna. I want to do that. I go fine. We're not here to copy it. We're here to have fun with it, you know. Let's That's let's great. take the ride that the ride never had, you know. And I kind of like, I would like to be known for just having some fun and and uh, you know, as Walt Disney told Herb Ryman, just do something people will like. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's, just it's do something everyone will like. And so, wouldn't it be nice to do that? Before we wrap up, I you know I wanted to look to the future. Uh, I think industry is at a real crossroads. I think it was even before the pandemic. So I wanted to throw out a few issues that themed entertainment is kind of wrestling with today and just get a quick take from you about how, how you would like to deal with them or how you think they should be dealt with. Uh, one is incorporation of intellectual property. This has become almost mandatory to get any project off the ground these days anywhere, really. And uh, do you have any thoughts on how to effectively deal with that? I think the biggest challenge is boring the designer. Mm. Like I never, like if I was there, I wouldn't, I mean, you know, like Winnie the Pooh, the only way to do that is to take the ride system and everything else over the moon. So it's, it's experiencing the story even better than the movie. This is the thing. Movies are quick cuts. I mean, it's nothing but smash cutting like in a Marvel film, right? Mm -hmm. All that action. You can never experience that in a ride like you can in a film. So the trick with intellectual property, because basically rides are tracking shots, they're dolly shots. You're driving through at a particular distance all this stuff, unless you're in a motion-based theater. It's the closest thing to the editing of a film. But even then, you know, there's a logic that you're in a vehicle and you're not really smash cutting. So there's 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 some issues with that. Uh, and I and I feel as a designer, that's very, very challenging. So I think the it's how you do it is my answer. I, I'm, I'm not so offended by the intellectual property being forced on you is the freedom to interpret and expand. Because, you know, if, if movies are real life with the boring parts cut out, 
rides are movies with the boring parts cut out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Mr. Toad is Grand Theft Auto and you go to hell, so to speak, right? I mean, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and it's not all of Wind in the Willows. And and, and the Little Mermaid ride is like a book report, right? Now that's IP. So that's IP treated like, oh, we need to tell you what you saw in the movie all over again. Right, right. I don't know that that does. Winnie the Pooh is literally just, you know, an adventure through his world. So you want to be able to take that property and not let the studio that owns it you know, force you into doing a book report. I think it can be successful if you said, I want to fly like Iron Man. I've always wished I could be in the suit and fly and do that because I can't do that in the movie. Okay, boom, give me that ride. And it's like the rocket jets, but you're in a suit, okay? That could even satisfy it without being some big show where we have to meet Gwyneth Paltrow and then we have to go do this and we have to check off all these boxes. Yeah, Don't bore the guest and don't bore the designer. Now, I do feel like there's room for history-based attractions or premise-based attractions. If you create a land that's a premise, why not expand on the premise of that land? The city of New York has a buggy ride, has a Surrey ride through Central Park. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's no IP with that. It's the, the IP is New York and you're going to experience your own story, we're not going to like spoon feed you every single little thing that you're doing, like the Rivers of America does. Oh, let's hear about the deer. You know, we're, you're going to get to have the freedom to finish the ride in your mind. It's going to be your world. Let's don't just beat up the guest and handcuff them into the movie. Let's let them have an adventure. That's where the fun is. Impressionist paintings do that. You look at the painting and they just give you the light and the shadow and you make up what the people are thinking. Yeah. That's what good actors do. They just stare off camera and you're like, I wonder, I'm going to think what I think he's thinking. And that's what makes him a good actor is because your thoughts are projected on the actor's blank stare, right? Oh, he's so good. Look at that. He's thinking exactly what I'm thinking. Right. (laughs) Good designers don't finish the whole thing. Don't let the IP force you into doing like the galaxy's edge thing or something like this where you know i love the galaxy's edge but if you if you prescribe every little detail the guests can't role play themselves let them have one hand on the steering wheel that's very interesting yeah well it's the difference between a book report kind of what walt did which is like give you a canvas through which to go be david crockett it's like if you just want to go be david crockett and do the things that david crockett did you had Frontierland to go mess around in and find your own sort of adventure. Wasn't Tom Sawyer Island at its best when you could go with your friends and just run around those caves and spy on each other? And as a little boy, that's all I did. I role-played in those lands. I didn't feel shortchanged because I didn't read the entire story of how a lightning bolt hit the lookout tree and formed three little extra, you know, three little springs of water that sprung and separated down. Okay, that's good to have, and you should have that. And if you want to drill for it, go drill for it. But let's let, it's like letting a drawing breathe. If you detail every leaf on the tree, it's a boring drawing. Let's let the drawing open up like a wine and let the wine breathe and let your mind take the glass of wine, let it open up in your head. Right. That's what great things do. Another one of the uh, issues that, uh, the industry is kind of facing today is a lot of cultural changes and how attractions are viewed. Uh, we've seen this happen uh, recently with Jungle Cruise. And uh, any thoughts on how you know designers should deal 
with that, with, uh, I guess you could say legacy attractions in a changing world. Sure. Well, I feel like no one ever faults you if you make the scene better. <laughs> if mm. you're going to take something out, if you're going to take out the auction scene of the Pirates of the Caribbean and you say, well, it's an auction scene. I have to find, and uh, we're going to take this out and that out. We're going to do this with the auction scene, that with it. Well, that auction scene was created for a punchline. So it's sort of like me telling you a joke all over again and go, well, you can't tell the joke and use that punchline. You're just going to have to write a different punchline for the exact same series of events. <laughs> yeah. Well, not every joke plays, you know, take my wife, please, doesn't play the same if you can't say the word please. You say, take my wife? I don't know. Uh, oh, yeah, take my wife, cheeseburger, or take my <laughs> wife differently. But sometimes you need to either redo the scene and admit to yourself, say, well, you know what? The auction just doesn't work anymore. We're going to not have an auction. We're going to come up with the funnest thing we've ever come up with, and it's going to be a gunfight going on here and the pirates are shooting each other and it's just barely going over your head. We're going to reimagine the whole thing. And by the way, there have been scenes that have been reimagined. Some scenes, I guess, short answer can be adapted better than others. Other things need to be reimagined, hmm. you know, uh, to, to address that attraction in a, in a new way, but why not just improve it? Uh, I mean, there was no, yeah. no politically correct reason to change the treehouse. I don't think, other than maybe ADA codes or something, I don't know, into the Tarzan idea. It was just revised to that, to be more relevant. Aladdin's Oasis um, was the answer for a while to the Tahitian Terrace because they were going to close it because they didn't have enough people going to it. The Tiki mm. craze had not kicked in yet. So that was actually a dying restaurant. And operations goes, we want to save money and close it. I got criticized because I was behind the Aladdin's Oasis concept, the magic close-up oh, magic yeah. restaurant with a show in it and it pretty much closed because it was too expensive not because nobody liked it you know and you go well okay so we're going to renovate it we're just going to make it more relevant or so to me this is a case of relevance in a relevant world and there are ways of doing it but not every not every joke can be retold or you can't always put a band-aid on something and then i think people go oh i'm reminded that that used to be this auction scene mm, yeah See, sometimes if you don't go far enough and you put a Band-Aid on it, people are like, oh, honey, you remember? Remember when it had this in it and the, the redhead was they were? Yeah, I remember that. Right, right. So why not just change it? People go, oh, my goodness. The coolest thing, you go around that bend, you're not, you're not going to believe what you're going to see there. It's so great. Because if you, if you really can't improve it, why, why remind people of the thing that you're trying to change? Right. That's a really interesting way to put it. Yeah. Well, yeah, you really don't move forward. You know, sometimes you need plastic surgery versus a Band-Aid. <laughs> exactly. That's a good way to put it. Uh, one last topic uh, has been the integration of mobile technology into the park experience. Uh, now you plan your vacation and even proceed from one experience to the next. Uh, using your phone, uh, do you think there are perils in tethering people too tightly to their devices? or perils in overplanning things even? Boy, is that a good question. The answer is yes. I think there are, it's funny, perils. One man's peril is another man's app. I mean, you know, mm. it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the people that are on their phone and are the generation that are 
doing every single thing on their phone. The theme park only exists for them to catalog experiences to post for an eight hour period. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, how can I, how can basically they're walking into a back lot for their Instagram account. And they're like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to, no, no. I mean, you're laughing because it's kind of true. It's kind of like, oh, you know what? I, I think I'm going to buy the $17 orange bird sipper because I'm, oh, you're going to buy it. Good. I'll post yours. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're looking at post-worthy stuff. And so there's, there's that there's people involving you. And I, I would say kind of like the previous question, if you can make the involvement seamless or additive, and, and one of my challenges, you ask about dream projects, and we've got two of them going now, is to make technology social. I would rather take you from the isolation of you looking down at your phone into an AI or multi-user shared experience, because I don't want to take you away from mom and dad in the line. I would rather have something that unifies it. So an example of this is the game that puts a trivia word on your forehead and you hold it up and three mm -hmm. people do something in line. And now the phone is involving everyone instead of uh, siloing everyone. And so social technology to me is the holy grail. And we're developing some of those right this minute and we're testing them. We're not even just talking about, we're testing them. Actually we sneak into parks and test them and sneak back out again. And <laughs> but, but, but our multi-user technology that we're developing allows hundreds of thousands of people without the thing crashing. Pokemon Go crashes. A lot of these things, when they're mass multi-user, crash. You can only maybe go up to about 100 people at once. We're doing mass multi-user experiences. Mass, mass things. So maybe you're not even looking at your screen. It's involving you. I do feel like serendipity is the endangered species of theme parks. And limited capacity parks without fast passes is showing the public all over again how fabulous it is to go, hey, Jeff, Michael, let's just let's just go on that right now. When's the last time you went on the story? The guilty pleasure is the storybook land canal boats. It looks like idiots and sit on those little canal boats, you know, and look and point at the little how nicely they did the hinges on those buildings. You know, let's just be let's just geek out on the canal boats because there's no line or that. I feel like that serendipity is what I grew up with and I miss it. I'm not like, let's go plan, run to every ride. It sort of ruins it for me to go 9.42 PM. You know what that is? Finish that $42 steak at the Blue Bayou because it got four minutes to get over to this line. Mm, yeah. Okay, $42, this stuff is not cheap. I kind of want to enjoy it when I want to enjoy it. Now, I do think technology is going to get to the point and I'd like to be a part of that, where it's fluid. In other words, the, the app is helping you, but it's not running you. In other words, you can manage the, the app and, and the system is so liquid and you know how many guests are everywhere that it is liquid enough for you to still have a perceived sense of one hand on the wheel. You're not being dragged around by this thing. You can just go and do stuff. And you're like, oh, well, the app is telling me or I'm, I'm looking at it anyway because I'm posting this, but it's reminding me of this other thing. Oh. I mean, for some people, it is about that. It's only about that. And they love it. They love beating their friends with the fast pass and having it. And, and unfortunately, the queues that are, you know, millions and millions of dollars get thrown away by people racing through them as being part of a fast pass group. So Indiana Jones, you run through it to get to the car you know, or, or other attractions. So 
you know. Anyway. Yeah, the, no. That, I'm, that, I'm that, working that, on it. I'm working yeah. on it. I feel like it's here to stay. It's where it's it's the momentum. You better get on the train or get off. But um, you're not going to ban devices. You better you better find a way to mobilize. But I even think on Galaxy's Edge, where you're photographing every crate for the fun of it, if it's fun, you're holding the lineup. These things are not conceived right yet. I mean, you're holding the lineup. I, I go and do these to see if they really work. And literally, people are waiting behind you, and you feel pressured because you got to basically, you know, take a picture of a uh, QR code on a box, right. and then there's dialogue. Okay, Commander, is that the right one? Meanwhile, all these people are waiting behind you, and you're reading it. Come on, let me just collect it and go. You know, yeah. I get it. Yeah. So, you know, it's in its infancy, I guess, is the kind way to say it. And we got great people working on this, but it's it's kind of in its infancy. But uh, yeah, I think exciting potential there. And like you said, you're not going to get rid of devices. It's kind of the Walt thing of, you know, if the people make a path, you better put a path there through the grass, you know? Yes. Because... Brilliant, Michael. That's exactly right. And the next path is glasses. It's not far off. So so the looking down, the heads up aspect of this is really the new horizon. Mm. So you're mm -hmm. wearing your sunglasses, you're out there. And um, frankly, I think the information that's most valuable is like how many minutes until your food is ready. I would rather know that on my, on my phone and glasses, like, you know, yeah, at the snack bar or whatever versus, you know, some other information. Yeah, news you can use. Well, you know, one last thing along these lines. I just wanted to ask, uh, what are a couple of things in the theme park designer vernacular, I guess you could say? What are a couple of things you'd like to stamp out? What are a couple of things you'd like to encourage? I would like to... I would like to encourage uh, people to think further out and to, uh, you know, push the envelope, of course, you know, to, to look for new ways to do things uh, for, uh, frankly, the, 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 the things I would stamp out, I guess, I guess I would want to stamp out the denial of, uh, you know, normalizing viruses and COVID and all this into the theme park and just accepting status quo of any kind and saying aim higher to create and push technology and push the medical profession because medical profession is usually behind science it's a need needs-based thing i mean why is the cold not solved yet you know, mm -hmm. you know right yeah i don't know it, it seems like we sure got vaccines kind of quick this round you know somebody was really busy and they did a great job so you know how can how can we elevate that i guess i would want to stamp out uh, anything that's in the barrier of great shared experiences. And I think, you know, everything that we're enduring right now, and uh, we have to right now, I understand. I'm not, I'm not an unmasker type person saying, let's do something unsafe. I'm just saying Walt Disney would say, you know, just like George Lucas wouldn't let you put masks in the films or, or have distanced people with lightsabers, you know, <laughs> or, you're not, you know, we're, we're not making that movie. I'm making the movie I want to make. Well, I feel the same way. We're making the theme park we want to make. We just want to make it safe enough for people to enjoy again. And I think I want to see hugs on parents and kids and hugging characters and all that. All right. Well, uh, one last one last thing. Uh, we like to throw open the floor, I guess you could say, uh, to some of our Patreon subscribers when we're going to do one of these and see if the people 
out there have anything they'd like to know about. So we have two questions from Ellen who sent in uh, questions this month. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, she first wanted to compliment you on your presentation on Herb Ryman that she did for the Family Museum, the Walt Disney Family Museum. That was Thank you, Ellen. That was a fun time. Uh, her first question is, uh, when renovating or enhancing classic Disneyland experiences, did you think of, uh, and she mentions uh, some of the experiences at Disneyland, did you think of projects as needing a balance between nostalgic and familiar and forward thinking? Or would you say the process of looking to create something of quality allowed that balance to happen organically? That's an incredibly good question. But this is not the time or place. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, did she <laughs> cite a particular? It's hard for me to react to that. If you had a specific attraction, that would be helpful. Uh, well, she, she mentions Main Street and Adventureland. Okay, let's just take um, both, or, or, or I'll take I'll take Adventureland because I've talked too much about Main Street. So the the redo of Adventureland in the uh, 1990s, where we redid the Jungle Cruise dock and all those kind of things. Um, I really wanted to err on the side of nostalgia and 40s music and Indiana Jones and kind of like Main Street, turn the clock forward enough to be a little more relevant. So you do hear big band music and things like that. And it's much more of that, even though it's really not the period of World War II, it's the romance of the late 30s, early 40s, the golden age of Hollywood. So when you're on the Jungle Cruise dock, all the music, and I chose every song that plays on that, that dock, uh. is you know, is romantic. It's from the forties. And I didn't, some of it, some of it doesn't really obey the exact year of Indiana Jones. I think someone rocking my dream boat by the Mills brothers or Dorothy Lamore's moon over Mancura, Manacura mm. is a little later. So you cheat a little bit and you want to err on the side of that. I cheated using the iconography or the interior of the house of blues for the South sea traders. Ellen Guevara did that interior and um, we used reference from that as saying, let's take all the old wood and stencil it and give it a uh, a fantasy look. Rolly Crump, when he originally did those interiors, it was very much of a fantasy of faraway places versus slaving to a literal uh, photograph of a particular environment. Mm. It's a pastiche. I mean, you have shrunken Ned in there, for goodness sake, or you've got <laughs> Aladdin's other genie or a, a penny-pinching elephant. So you're not really building a movie set as much as you're embracing faraway places. And, and the other challenge is that block of buildings of Adventureland starts at Indiana Jones, goes through British colonial architecture of the Jungle Cruise dock, which was the nostalgia of the original dock, which is French and, and British colonialism, and then ends with the sort of adobe mud feeling of the Middle East, which is Aladdin's Oasis and the Adventureland Bazaar. So it was very hard to mirror in a city street or anything like that with a jungle cruise dock that's literally the length of a block. Mm -hmm. How do you mirror all those styles? So we had to be very flexible. So hopefully that gives you a sense of, I tried to use nostalgia where it counts and 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 go to the reach to the audience a little bit and then use real historic details everywhere I could for literally the colonial of the dock using French, using literal uh, a whole infirmary 
and bone saws and everything to communicate right. the idea that you could die here and that the jungle is a danger. We even had the dock sinking. So nature was destroying the dock because you're on the edge of, you know, of danger and excitement. So the jungle was literally clawing its way through the building. So there was lots of, you know, a lot of thought that went into those things. Uh, her other question is, uh, whose name and work within the world of Imagineering do you think more Disney fans should know? Wow. I think in my more recent past, I have to go to Chris Runco. I mean, he was, he, to me, when I had to go to someone that I felt I could just take a drawing or sketch or even an idea and pass it on to, I knew it was going to come out better on the other end. Chris Runco really understands the story, especially on like the Jungle Cruise dock. That was his, his war. I mean, that the Jungle Cruise sign, he did that. He was, he, to me, feels felt very much uh, like that. Um, another name or people that are just in that second tier that you don't hear much about was Ed Johnson. Ed Johnson on Disneyland Paris Main Street, um, as much as we had Susan Cowan and Deb Rager, and I mean, I could name Sandy Malali and, and all the different interiors people. Juan Delgado, I, you know, I, I named these people in tweets and I try to continually do that. Uh, Ed Johnson was a, was a great influence on me, as I mentioned, in as, as someone who did not the design you're going to see as the original concept, but making it real. People that made these things real, that understood construction, understood design. And uh, remember the model shop, as Tony Baxter will tell you, took so many great works and turned them into reality. Mm. So -hmm. the thing you saw built the draftsman show set guy worked from came from a model that was interpreted and those model builders, Ed Johnson worked with Mark Davis, worked with a lot of, lots of different ones, Harriet Burns, all the different ones in the early generations and many later, you know? Right. Uh, that's, those, are, those are all good names. Skip Lang is an Imagineer that not that many people know, but, but was always on the right hand of so many of Tony that when it came to rock work, he was known for, or Jolt, just different ones that oh, yeah. that really contributed literally the look of an attraction or would fall on their sword to get a detail in for any one of us. We all had so much help. I want to say that like film, I think directors are overrated as I've learned, <laughs> you know, there's so many people just behind their director. There's a guy called the writer who, you know, comes up with those words the actors are directed to say, you know, some of these people are underrated, so. That's a tough, those are wonderful, wonderful questions. Well, I, I, I totally agree that writers are uh, completely underrated and uh, everyone out there listening should hire a writer today because. Do you know any? Yeah. I, I could put you in touch with some. We've hired, Sato Studios has hired Michael Crawford proudly as a writer. Oh, uh, I, I have to say, and uh, yeah, you were, you were talking before about the kindness of people, um, giving people a shot at things. And you certainly did that for me and I will be forever oh, grateful. So that's a little plug for you in there. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know, remember we, we also only hire talented people that can show that they can do the work. And so, cause we don't hire many people. We hire consultants actually, but, but we, we bring in the very best that we can find for a particular job. And you happen to be the absolute tailor-made perfect person for, that particular project. And I couldn't think of anyone better to do it. So oh, um, there you go. Thanks. But, I'll put uh, that in my reel. We're, we're, we're all paint. <laughs> we're, you know, it's like an artist paintbrushes. We're all little tools and we're good for various things. So I try to be a Swiss army knife, but uh, it's hard to do that. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, you know, we always end up by asking people what's next for them. You've talked a little about what's next for you. Uh, is there anything you'd like people to check out? Anything you'd like to plug before we go? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, as experiential designer, um, love to do, I would, the things I'd like to do that I'm not doing just yet, that I'd like to do is I really see reimagining the retail experience in the mall. I think it could use it. I think someone who does that things like an Imagineer or myself does or do would be very useful in that. So I'd like to, be, I'd like to pursue that. So I've kind of self-developed some concepts to transform big box retail stores that are empty into something far more interesting than that. Um, I do love automotive. It's just out there. And I like working on that, the aircraft stuff and yachts and kind of luxury. I've had some good opportunities to do some work in those areas. And uh, I couldn't be more happier working with Virgin Galactic, at least at this juncture, working with them. They're as forward thinking as you could imagine. And Michael Colglazer coming from Disney totally gets it. He's an amazing, amazing CEO for them to have. I think everyone's going to be very, very impressed and surprised as he continues in that role. That's so, very cool. I did not know that he was over there. That's, that's uh, yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. So, and this record, you know, I'm plugging the little records going to come out, but, uh, but yeah, so those are, those are a few things that we're doing and uh, I'm always looking to do more and different. So if you're out there and you want to do something, let me know. We have a, a super studio, sotostudios.com has some of our latest work on there and you can take a look at that and see see what fits your your needs right a lot of cool projects a lot of your uh, appearances and podcasts and blogs uh links to everything are on there and also it's a uh, wacky soapbox racers.com is that correct? Oh, yeah and futureproofexperiences.com all one word futureproof experiences which is all about the work we're doing with terahertz scanning and testing and covid uh covid screening so you can read all the latest all the interviews on television and articles and everything on that so i know that's not the most exciting thing but frankly it's the most powerful thing that you could ever i'm just surprised the industry isn't why plan the new ride when you have to wear a mask to go on it let's solve this thing you know and and i've had people call me and just join and say you know i'm a computer scientist i want to be a part of this what can i do so uh, we put together a great deal of doctors and physicists and scientists and computer programmers doing simulations of theme parks. We've mm -hmm. actually simulated Disneyland masked and massless with super spreading. Oh, wow. Yeah. We have agent-based simulation, which means every single person does something different. It's not some bogus thing. This is the most intelligent in simulation you can do. Disney does it, but we can do that for other parks or even stadiums. Oh, wow. So uh, it's That's exciting. All right. Well, everybody can check that there out. There you go. Check it out. And uh, man, thank you so much for your time. Oh, and thank you for patronizing Shrunken Ed, the only <laughs> self-service Imagineer. Of course, he is. And, and we, 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 we really thank you for your kind patience in listening to this 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 drivel that Mr. Soto has been, been pushing out. Yes. Well, and... This has probably been one of the dullest interviews I've ever had to sit through. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think there, Card?
All right, so that wraps up our two-part interview with Eddie Sato. Uh, Michael, some great ideas, some food for thought there at the end, some stuff to think about. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is why I wanted to talk to Eddie because, you know, you always get a unique perspective on things, and I I just I enjoy hearing him talk about themed entertainment, and uh, I think he has a very unique outlook. So. Uh, I would encourage everyone to visit his website, satostudios.com. He's done many interviews, as I've said. Uh, He's done articles. He's written a lot. And you can get a look at his projects. hes I feel like he's a guy who's interested in the same kind of things we are. And a lot of really cool work has been done by him. So check it out. Yeah, we wish him the best in his new ventures. They sound exciting. He's inspired me to to think think wilder, you know? He seems to really want to push the boundaries, so it's very inspirational. Yeah. We'd like to thank you all for listening and supporting us. Uh, One of the best ways to do that is via our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash progresscityusa. We really appreciate all of you who have donated uh, and we hope you're enjoying our live streams that happen at the end of, end of the month. And Michael, we had our first questions for the interview. Someone took us up on that. So uh, you can just see the perks from the Patreon falling in. Exactly. Benefits left and right. You can help us shape the content going forward and uh, get in some questions for some real creative legends. So uh, check it out. We will all celebrate the future hand in hand. And remember the magic all at the same time. Uh, before we get to what's next, I'd like to remind everybody that they can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at progresscityusa.com. And of course, Twitter, you're at progresscityusa. I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. We love hearing from people and we encourage people to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Any rating, any kind of comment, any kind of email, any kind of Patreon subscription, every little bit helps us continue doing this it's very encouraging so thank you all for those who have done it and now we're ready to talk next month michael where do we go next month well next month we're breaking out the pixie dust and heading straight into fantasy land the most magical kingdom of all walking right down the middle of cinderella's castle exactly fantasy land yeah i mean fantasy land special place it's you know it's the happiest land of them all and uh home to so many legendary attractions so this is gonna be a lot of fun our first you know full fully loaded land if you will exactly lots to talk about in fantasy lot to talk about so stay tuned for that and uh you know, I wonder who will get to talk about fantasy land. You're just going to, have to wait and see. But uh, until then, we'll see you actually pretty soon. Since this is part two episode, we'll see you uh, quite soon next month for our fantasy land episodes. And until then, hope you all take care. We'll see you soon.